What's up, founders, and welcome back to the In Demand podcast, where we talk all about how to reach your very first 1 million in ARR. I'm your host, Asia Arangio, and I'm the founder of Demand Maven, where we work with early stage SaaS companies on reaching their very first growth milestones. Let's do this. All right, I'm going to keep it real with y'all, and I'm just going to come out and say it as per usual. Y'all need to stop freaking out about quantitative results. <laughs> Y'all need to stop freaking out about numbers that you see after running an experiment or a test. And this is for, of course, my mo- my more established growth people, but this is especially for my early stage technical and even non-technical founders who are running their SaaS businesses and they are, I'm putting this in finger quotes, testing things, but when they see the output they freak out. Here's a couple of stories of what I'm talking about. Okay, so there is this collective response sometimes. And it, it, it's a it's a reaction and it's a response that, especially if you are a technical founder, you almost can't resist, like you can't help but do. <laughs> and and, it, and it's just because of the nature of technical work. So with engineering, you write some code, you, you might be debugging something, you might be building something, writing something, whatever it is. And, you know, you you deploy that code, you test it, and then you might find that, oh, crap, like something fell apart or maybe it didn't deploy correctly or there's some error in terms of how you deployed that code. And then when you go and you troubleshoot it, you already know the list of things to go through to troubleshoot. And the thing about engineering in general is that it's a relatively fast and also relatively closed feedback loop. Closed meaning you already generally know the different various touch points that you may need to go and explore. Like y- y- you may, you're actually already generally aware of most of the inputs and you know what to go and generally look at to go and like fix some of the outputs. And and usually the environment that you're working with is relatively closed. It's not necessarily infinite. If you think about like, you know, like the full scope of your code base, like your code base is relatively a closed environment. And then the other thing, too, is that you are usually experienced enough to know how to troubleshoot things. Like, the feedback loop is relatively quick, if you think about it. Not only that, but, like, when you make changes, you are usually going to get a relatively quick insight on whether or not it worked or not. Of course, there are scenarios where that's not necessarily true. You might have to wait a few days, maybe even a few weeks in some, like, really rare cases in really complex environments and really complex scenarios for the most part, you already generally know what you need to go and look at. And if you don't know, the environment that you need to explore isn't infinite for the most part. So this is different, however, than growing a business, running marketing campaigns, executing growth experiments, and any type of other strategic practice or any type of process or project even that not only requires, of course, like your understanding fundamentally of the business and the product, but also there's other humans on the other end of it, people that you don't know, strangers. And what I find is there are these scenarios where a campaign is run or a project is executed or an experiment has been executed or deployed or whatever it is. And oftentimes there is this assumption that there's going to be an immediate instantaneous 
feedback loop and also that you can trust that instantaneous immediate feedback loop. Now, there are certainly activities and processes and practices that you can execute that, yeah, you are going to get a pretty quick feedback loop. So for example, it might take you you know, a few weeks or whatever it is, maybe even a couple of days, depending on the tools that you're using to conduct interviews. And it is true that is usually as soon as you conduct the interview, yeah, like you've got a pretty relatively quick feedback loop. Now you just need volume to kind of, you know, test the things. But let's say, uh, I'll give you a couple examples. So let's say you are testing a new acquisition channel. Like this is a really common one. I hear this all the time. I tested Google ads and it didn't work for me, or I tested LinkedIn and it didn't work for me. Okay. Usually the context is, I tested X, I tested some paid acquisition channel, whatever it is. I spent the minimum amount of money to test it, like one to 2K and total, and I only ran it for about two weeks. That's usually what I hear. Oh, I tested this. And it's like, okay, well, how long did you test it? How much did you spend? What was your total volume? Oh, I only spent one to 2K and I only did it for like two weeks. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not surprised it didn't work because... <laughs> You didn't, you didn't do the grind. Like you didn't, you didn't do the work, so to speak, of actually really thoroughly testing this channel. You know, no teach, no shade. But what'll end up happening is you'll run this test, and you'll see the result, and you're like, oh man, this only got like two demo requests, or oh, this only got like five trials, and you'll react to that end number, and the the reaction is where suddenly the strategic process of all of this suddenly just completely falls apart because we're now reacting to something that we don't exactly understand. And this is just like one of many, many, many scenarios. But I can go back and and debunk a lot of myths about this. So first and foremost, usually 1 to 2K is not enough to spend in any paid acquisition environment period anyway. We find that it typically takes about three to five K per month minimum. That's the minimum. And that's that's assuming that your LTV slash maybe average contract value is like relatively low. But three to five K minimum per month for at least three to four months. And we need to be iterating and testing many different types of funnels. If you are testing one funnel for three months and you're only spending one to two K per month, you're, you're probably not going to see results anyway because there's not enough iterations out there to prove this proof of concept. I know this personally from having managed budgets of anywhere from five to, I would say, 20K per month personally. But then I've also worked with extremely experienced and just wildly impressive paid acquisition experts who handle really small budgets and like really, really, really big budgets. And I can tell you from personal experience that if your scope of testing is too small, if your scope of testing is too small, then of course you're not going to see the end result. But what ends up happening though is that we we react to the result of whatever the experiment was and we just assume, we make the assumption we freak out and we're like, oh man, like I totally wasted 2K. Can't believe I did that. This didn't work for me. Ugh, I gotta like move on. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that like paid acquisition is gonna work for everyone. Not saying that. But what I am saying is whenever we run experiments, we have to be really, really, really careful that we are not reacting preemptively to the result and also that we're not making assumptions about why the result actually happened. I'm gonna give you another example. 
So I was working with a company. This is another example that I see a lot, a lot, a lot. Like this happens so much in in really executing the work. But I was working with a company and they the marketing team had this hypothesis. And I thought it was a, I thought it was a really interesting hypothesis. And the hypothesis was we think that we could generate uh, either a higher volume of quality leads and or ultimately impact revenue if we were to bring on more, uh, or if we were to test, instead of just offering a demo, what if we offered like a two to five minute virtual instant demo? So someone completes a form, they get access to a video recording. And this is actually better for us because anyone who's not qualified doesn't even enter our pipeline, which is great. Like we, we, we don't want anyone who's not qualified to enter our pipeline, obviously. But anyone who is qualified they have entered the pipeline, they may decide to start a trial or they may decide to book a more formal demo after seeing the the, the video. And I thought, this is a great idea. This is a great experiment. Let's absolutely try it. We have enough traffic on the website to to test this. And so so they 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 make the video. They adjust the website to create an option for this. And I kid you not. <laughs> After one week, I think they had gotten like maybe two video requests. And then the demos were almost the same. So the demos were like, I think at the time, like we were getting about like six to eight demo requests per week. And we were trying to, we were trying to double that number. Like, how do we double this number? So I, th- and so one of the hypotheses was, of course, you know, I wonder if we could do like a video demo instead and see if that impacts the number. Well, it was really interesting because after the very first week, so the demos are relatively the same, but the video didn't get as much. It got maybe like two, I think. And after the first week, the whole team, everyone, founder included, everyone was like, oh, this didn't work. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We are reacting way too soon. We have one week, just one. We have lived with this change for one week. How many conversions are we going to need to see before we are able to trust the number that we're seeing and also either the lift or not? And also too, I was making the argument that like, okay, yeah, like if you want to compare like the video to just the regular demo request, sure. But didn't we gain two whole new conversions because the demo was the same? So it was really interesting. And it was really interesting because the team was reacting very preemptively to the result. But the reality is, we would have to live with this change for several weeks. Like, yes, like we get a lot of traffic to the site, but we don't get so much that we can make it instant. Like we don't get millions of hits to the site. We can't make a decision on this instantaneously. It's gonna it's gonna take probably like, I don't know, five to six weeks to live with this before we really know if this is working or not, or if this is having a positive impact or any of the other things. And also too, there's nothing that we can assume about this. We We haven't even really analyzed the data. We don't even know if maybe like the week was just weird. And so sure enough, so the the team after after coming to, you know, a sense of reasoning, they were like, "Oh, I guess you're right." And so we lived with the change for several weeks after that. And eventually we came to the conclusion that the video demo while it doesn't seem to necessarily have a huge impact in terms of conversion rate, it does at least seem to increase the net overall leads that we're able to generate who appear to be qualified. And that that was the main takeaway of 
the video just created another way for people who maybe weren't ready for the demo to actually see the product without necessarily starting a trial. And the more qualified people would then proceed along the buying process. It increased the general, the total volume of people who were entering the pipeline. And it'll, it, it remains to be seen on if one versus the other performs better, you know, putting that in finger quotes, performs better in terms of conversion rate or even like retention later or, or average contract value or whatever that is. We, like that, that data remains to be seen. But what does seem to be true is, while not too, too many people take the video option, many people seem to at least be using it to make a decision about their buying process at some point later. And we'll decide, like, is it even worth offering this? Doesn't seem to hurt. But at the same exact time, we don't know yet. And I think this also brings me to my ultimate point, which is you have to remember that quantitative outputs, quantitative numbers, like the number at the end of the day, it can only tell you what. It cannot tell you why. And I think that this is the biggest disconnect that I see with teams trying to execute any kind of growth experimentation or they're trying to test something new or different. And maybe they're not running like a pure A-B test. That's fine. But what is happening is they are, they're executing some kind of test and, and they want to understand the performance of it later. But what ends up happening is they see the number at the end of the day or the end of the week or the end of the month. And then they assume immediately why, and then they therefore react. So what ends up happening then is you, you see that number and then you, you react and you start spouting off a million other solutions as opposed to staying in the problem space. Do we actually really understand what this number means? Do we actually understand why this is happening? Because the number can only tell us what. And even then, there's this little thing that I'm going to mention, which is called statistical relevance. And that's a whole other bag, but I'm going to bookmark that. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But again, there tends to be this immediate reaction to this number. And we forget, and I'm saying we, because sometimes even I do this, but sometimes we just forget that like the number is just a number. There is no context, generally speaking, as to why. The number can't tell us why. And the moment that we start applying why to a number is the moment that we start carving a path that might not actually exist. I'm going to tell you one more story, and then I'm going to mention, I'm going to talk about statistical relevance. But there was, there's another scenario that I want to mention, another client that I've been working with for several months now. And there was a moment where we needed to get serious about what activation and adoption actually means. Like, what does activation and adoption actually mean to us as a company? And I'm working with this client through that definition. And one of the practices or projects that I, I gave the founder, of course I could do this myself, but it was important to me that the founder did this because I could do this myself and come back and report. But what I find is that sometimes I can do an analysis and get it into my head, all these takeaways and insights, but it never actually translates to the, to the other person. So I was like, okay, founder, I would love it if you did your own analysis of take the top 20 to 50, whatever it is, best paying customers, longtime customers, new customers. I just want you to analyze like what was their actual activation path? Like what were the activities that they did when they did it? And, and like what happened? And there, there was a general assumption before 
that the customer took all these steps before becoming a paying customer. But what was actually happening was the customer's coming in, testing something very, very, very quickly, like within 24 or 48 hours, and then becoming a customer. And then they were taking all these other steps. And this was mind-blowing to the founder because they had never once analyzed it. They had always just assumed. And it was also really interesting because even in the analysis, the founder was assuming that he knew exactly why customers were doing certain things. And I had to jump in and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, yes, like you've made these observations. You've calculated the result of this analysis. Like, like, like we, we can see like what percentage of customers do this? What percentage of customers do this? Like we can see that. We can see what day, but we, we cannot assume we know why. Now, luckily, I had a whole batch of customer research So I immediately pulled up my VOC, my voice of customer repository, my Airtable database that, you know, sometimes people make fun of me of, but hey, it works. And I pulled up real voice of customer and I said, we already know this. (laughs) I mean, we know this as in like Asia and Demand Maven and the marketing team, but like the CEO and potentially the CTO like didn't necessarily know. And so... I was like, yes, I can I can corroborate some of these patterns that you're seeing quantitatively. So for example, I, I could tell the founder, yep, eight out of 10 people said that they literally tested within the first 24 hours. It wasn't clear that they bought it, but they but it was clear that they at least tested a, a document first or tested a thing first, and then they would invite the team. And so I was able to corroborate that. But what I did say though was, but we didn't necessarily dig deep into why they did it the way they did it. So I don't, I can't necessarily say like, here's why they were doing these things. Like here's, here's what the perspective was at the time. But what I can say is we have research that says that, yes, like that is a typical buying path that people take. And, and I think like the, the ultimate moral to the story was, yeah, like there's these things that are happening and we can certainly see them and measure them, but we we are remiss and we are woefully making a mistake if we are assuming that we know what it means. If we see the number and we react to it, thinking that we understand it, but actually we really don't. Numbers without context don't have meaning. And yet we are so, so, so akin to reacting immediately when we see them. Even I do it. And I'm going to say I'm perfect. I have the same thing. And then I have to like check myself often of like, oh, wait, do I actually know what that number means? And like, why? Like, I know what it means, but like, why? Do I understand why? And I might not understand why. And it's it's to the, you know, often like whatever I push teams to figure out why they're like grown and they're like, oh, do we have to? And it's like, yes, because if we are assuming something and we don't actually understand this, we are going to go spend a bunch of money and time and energy building something, building campaigns, projects, paths, experiences, blah, 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 like everything. We're going to spend all this time and energy and money building all these things that we don't actually get. And sure, there's certainly cases for like, you know, being a cowboy and operating off of your gut instinct and your intuition. But what I what I can guarantee you is that the companies that are growing and growing fast, they know the time and the place to do those to do each of those. There's times and there's places for operating off of your intuition versus operating off of, I don't even want to say like data-driven insight, but just insights, period. 
Anyway, okay, getting off of my pedestal here, getting off of my high horse. The last thing I wanted to mention was I think that there's this really common practice too of you see this number, like you see this result. It's from whatever, like it's from running a campaign, it's from launching a feature, it's from testing new pricing, and you you immediately react to you know the first 48 hours, and then you immediately react again to the first week or whatever it is. And I have been schooled on this publicly before, but there is such a thing called statistical relevance. There is also a thing called just natural variance, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think that's what it's called. And both of these are at play anytime you see any increase or decrease in any kind of number over time. And what will also happen is a lot of teams will forget about statistical relevance and also forget about just natural variance. The first is there is a certain amount of conversions and impressions and volume of some metric that once you reach that volume, you can relatively trust the output of the numbers that you're seeing. And we see this the most in A-B testing. You'll hear a lot about statistical relevance and A-B testing. This also pops up in research where statistic sampling or sample sizing is also really important, assuming, of course, you don't know much about the data set that you're about to get into. But we see this like the sample size matters, and this this pops up a lot in experimentation and A-B testing. And the basic principle is until you hit a certain amount of volume of some number, of some metric, then you might not be able to judge the number anyway. So for example, I'll give you an example. So I have another client. They were running an A-B test on – they were testing two different funnels on uh, a paid acquisition campaign. They were testing – what if people completed the form on the landing page versus what if we just had a button that made people go to the trial? And what we wanted to understand was what was the conversion rate of either of these funnels? And is it, like, does one perform better than the other? Like if, if someone completes a form on the page, is that better than them clicking a button and going through our typical onboarding process? And what we found was we needed to run this test for several weeks, like it wasn't going to be something that we would be able to know immediately. Like we would need to, based on our statistical, you know, just statistical relevance, we needed to make sure that we hit a certain volume of conversions before we would actually know. And so after we got to about, I would say 300 or so conversions per funnel, that was when we looked back and we said, okay, what was the conversion rate of each funnel now that we've gotten the volume and now we can make a decision and it turns out totally inconclusive there there was very little difference between one funnel versus the other technically one performed a tiny bit better but it was like 5 to 20% better it definitely wasn't above the 40% better which is what we typically look for but we we couldn't have trusted that if we had only stopped at like 20 conversions and if we had said like oh yeah like you know, variant A performed better than variant B and, you know, because it got like, you know, 2x the, you know, conversions, whatever. But actually, we only ended up getting like 40 total conversions. Like we wouldn't have been able to do that and trust that number. There are plenty of calculators out there. Uh, CXL has a really good one that I've been playing around with lately. There's, There's a few others that are out there, but there are tools that you can use to calculate how many conversions or how many impressions or how many clicks am I going to need to get this to the center of this Tootsie Roll Pop? 
I'm kidding. But like, there are ways for you to figure out how much you're going to need before you can make like a conclusive decision. And even then, you might decide to test it again in the future. Uh, There might be other things that you can't control that might be impacting the number that you're seeing even then. And the other thing I wanted to mention too was, so that's statistical relevance, but then there's also just natural variance. So I I actually also learned this (laughs) the hard way, um, which is when it comes to certain numbers, uh, again, because we don't know the why behind the number, but there are certain numbers where there are quite literally a million factors that impact that number. I'll give you a great example traffic, website traffic. Everyone always talks about like, oh, like seasonal changes and blah, blah, blah. And like, yes, that's that's certainly true. There are, there are many teams that don't experience that because they have invested in, thing, in enough things to kind of cover enough of their bases over time where like things like seasonal variance doesn't really impact them. But there is also just like this thing called natural variance, which is on any given week, week to week or month to month, you may see a plus or minus 10% difference. So maybe one week you're up 15%, maybe the next week you're like down 8%. Maybe the next week you are up again 20%, but maybe the week after you're down 25% and you're like, what the heck is going on? And usually even, I would say even with like high volume websites, high high volume everything, sometimes the like the variance can be so wildly dramatic, but you can always tell that you're growing because even though you might have a few dips here and there, you tend to recover greater than what you've lost. But the variance is still very, very, very real. I'll never forget too, there was one time where, this was way, way back earlier in my career, and I remember I was freaking out because like our website traffic was down like 15% from the week before. And I distinctly remember freaking out about that. And a mentor at the time was like, yo, I mean, there's like a million things that are impacting this traffic number. Everything from what's going on in the world to the natural cycles and cadences of when people decide to make decisions and when people decide to hit the website. Bots. I mean, like, they're just like a, there's like literally a million and one things impacting this number. You can't be too down on yourself or hard on yourself if it's down 15% in one week. And he was like, wait like another couple of weeks. And if it's, and if it keeps going down, then like maybe there is something to be concerned about. But, but he was like, but I, I, I guarantee you like next week, it's probably going to be back to normal, maybe even increasing. And I was just like, I don't know. Oh my God. And sure enough, he was right. So I think like a week or two later, like it, it had recuperated and it was even better. But it's, but that's a type of reactivity to a number and also assumption and also not really understanding just the natural variance of things. Traffic is one example, and I'm and I'm sure some of you are out there listening and you're like, okay, well, yeah, like traffic is obvious. But there are others that we do the same exact thing for that are maybe not so obvious. MRR is one, trials are one, demos are one, activation rates. Sometimes we see conversion rates or various numbers and we freak out because like the past like one to two weeks were down or whatever. And it's not really clear how or why, but we still react to it. And the truth of the matter might just be natural variance. Maybe it was Christmas week and we just forgot. Or like there's like there's a million things that it could have been. And I want to inspire curiosity about these numbers and to not freak out as much. And also to not make the assumption that something isn't working, that it's broken, 
just because it doesn't seem like it's performing in that one time slice. There are many time slices. Now, of course, I will say in that same line of curiosity, if you start to notice a pattern, things are decreasing, things are declining, maybe it's not going in the direction that we want it to go. Maybe churn is increasing and it's like, okay, well, let's make sure that this isn't like a pattern or anything. Yeah, sure. Yes. Like, of course, let's then be reactive. But to start, let's maybe not immediately freak out. (laughs) Okay. So I covered several things today. I covered a couple of stories of patterns of teams reacting to certain numbers, to certain outputs. Then we moved over into a couple of stories that I shared just from my own experience of, of observing like various changes in these things and, and also very observing like how teams can tend to react to certain stuff like this. But also keeping in mind that statistical relevance and sample sizing matters at certain volumes. And then also, there's also just the natural variance of the world and the the natural ups and downs of things. And we we can't just assume that like, because one week was down that the whole thing is bad or broken. And the converse is true as well. Just because we have a very up week, we can't just assume that like the you know everything is working and it's all perfect and it's great. So, I just want to make sure that we are not being assumptive and also being reactive. And those two things are extremely dangerous to a company that is trying to actively grow. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope that this was helpful. I hope it unpacked something for you, unlocked something for you, maybe gave you a little bit of like, okay, I needed to hear this. Uh, But anyway, thank you so much again for joining me. As per usual, I will catch you on the next one. As always, thank you so much for spending this time with me. To learn more about how to reach your growth goals for your SaaS business, head on over to demandmaven.io. You'll find all kinds of free resources, articles, and content. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and I'll see you on the next one.